Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Those are the Beatitudes and woes of Luke chapter 6. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a weekly look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. And I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the second episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Having set the framework for liberation theology on the solid ground of Vatican II and the experience of poverty in Latin America last episode, we'll now build up the story of liberation theology proper. And Roberto Olivero's first chapter in Mysterium Liberationis will continue to be the blueprint. Also in this episode, I'll share three short stories about theater, protest, and mining from ministry in Honduras to continue to round out my own personal relationship with liberation theology. Oliveros divides the history of liberation theology into four phases, gestation, genesis, growth, and consolidation. Gestation occurs from 1962 to 1968, beginning with Vatican II and ending with the Latin American Bishops' Conference at Medellin. Oliveros begins by commenting on the sorry state of the Latin American economy and the Latin American church in the 1950s and early 1960s. Economically, Latin America suffers from dependence on the markets of the United States, Canada, and Europe. Let me illustrate the nature of this dependence through Burn a film by Gilo Pontecorvo that came out in 1969. A British agent, played by Marlon Brando, incites the enslaved population of a Caribbean island to revolt against their Portuguese masters. In one way, the revolt is successful. The enslaved people free themselves and no longer work in chains. In another way, the revolt is not successful at all. Though the former slaves are now free... The political leadership of the island, newly independent from Portugal, passes into the hands of the white colonists. And the economic leadership of the island, just as the British agent had planned, passes into the hands of the British Royal Antilles Sugar Company. The emancipated black population has improved somewhat, but in so many ways, little has changed at all. The black folks continue to work for white folks and to be ruled by white folks, even though black folks constitute the majority of the population of the island. We can say that a similar phenomenon occurred in Latin America as a whole throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Though many countries achieved independence from Spain and Portugal, those of whiter, more European descent continued to wield power 
over masses of black and indigenous people. Alongside Britain, the United States swooped in to fill the economic gap left by Portugal's and Spain's retreat. Colonial rule passed on to neo-colonial rule. The economy of Latin America became dependent on parasitic capital from the north. The 1950s and 1960s saw an increase in critical studies of this model of economic dependence, Latin American scholars awakening to the injustice of the system. As for the church, Oliveros recalls that the Latin American bishops were referred to as the, quote, church of silence, end quote, at Vatican II. Like the economy, the Second Vatican Council was largely dependent on the voices of European and North American bishops and theologians. Though Latin America constituted such a huge percentage of the world's Catholic population, you would not have known it if you were to observe the activities of the council. And Oliveros laments that, historically, Latin America had contributed little to universal Catholic theology. All of this would change in the Latin American Bishops' Conference at Medellin and the emergence of liberation theology. And a quick aside, uh, note that Oliveros, as do many liberation theologians, uh, jumps past the first Episcopal Conference in Latin America, Rio de Janeiro, in 1955. Jumps right over it to the second one, Medellin, in 1968. And why might that be? Well, Rio, while great in some ways, also had some issues. First, there is the drawback of an operational clericalism in the documents of that conference. The bishop's diagnosis of the fundamental issue in the church seems to always come back around to a shortage of priests. And don't get me wrong, priests are good, and I'm even becoming one. And it would be great if there were more priests, but relatively speaking, the lack of priests as a problem pales in comparison to the poor masses who are crying for liberation. It's a question of emphasis. Next, there's problematic language in Rio around indigenous communities. The Rio document states that, quote, the indigenous population is behind in their cultural development, end quote. I'm not sure what, quote, behind in their cultural development, end quote, means, aside from the clear takeaway that the bishops did not appreciate diversity in cultural expression and simply equated cultural progress with non-native Ladino cultural progress. And I'm hesitant to use the words culture and progress in the same sentence at all, really. Finally, uh, Rio dedicates a significant portion of its text to anti-Catholic movements, uh, namely communism and Protestantism. And again, I don't want to downplay the fact that sometimes militantly even, communists and uh, Protestants do draw Catholics away from the Catholic Church, and it can be a problem. But Rio had not yet arrived at the nuanced understanding of Vatican II on these matters. Perhaps Catholics are leaving the Church and becoming communists because the Church is not sufficiently on the side of oppressed workers. And perhaps Catholics are becoming Protestants because Catholic spirituality is too alienated from people's lives. Uh, and some, Rio treats communism and Protestantism through the limited lens of error and propaganda, not through the broader lens of the lived experience of the church, and especially not through the lens of the oppressed. 
Rio proposes the narrow answer of better catechesis. We just need to teach people Catholic, Catholic doctrine better. That's going to solve the problem. And Rio just in general lacks a serious sociological analysis of the nature of these problems. And enter then Medellin, uh, what Oliveros calls a watershed moment that divided the century in half in the Latin American church. So big deal. And it, it's really hard to exaggerate the import of Medellin. Oliveros names three central themes of Medellin, and I'll give a crucial quote associated with each one. First, the poor and justice. Quote, this Episcopal conference recommends an ever clearer demonstration in Latin America of the face of a church that is authentically poor, missionary, and paschal unfettered by temporal power and boldly committed to the liberation of every person and all people, end quote. Second, the theme of brotherly love and peace in a situation of institutionalized violence. Quote, peace in Latin America is not the simple lack of violence and shedding of blood. Oppression exerted by groups in power can give the impression of maintaining peace and order but in reality, it is nothing but the constant and inevitable seed of rebellions and wars, end quote. And third, the theme of the unity of history and the political dimension of the faith. Quote, we make an urgent call to business people, their organizations and political authorities to radically modify their assessment, attitudes and actions with respect to the end, organization, and functioning of business. Socioeconomic change in Latin America towards a truly human economy fundamentally depends on it, end quote. So these powerful themes coming out of Medellin that are, well, revolutionary. And in addition to these points by Oliveros, I would add that Medellin calls out neo-colonialism specifically, urging the church to participate in the Latin American process of, quote, liberating itself from the neo-colonialism to which it is subjected, end quote. Medellin is clear. It's clearly over and over again throughout the documents denouncing these injustices. And all of these denunciations the bishops at Medellin claim come from, quote, the masses who are clamoring to their pastors for liberation, end quote. At Medellin, the pastors of the Latin American church clearly heard this clamor and responded. Oliveros concludes his section on Medellin with a curious and powerful gloss on Pope Paul VI's statement in the encyclical Populorum Progressio that the task of pastoral activity is to, quote, pass from less human ways to more human ways of life, end quote. And about that, Oliveros writes, quote, human growth is divinization. Our divinization occurs as growth, as human progress, end quote. And I want to spend just a few moments here unpacking this short but dense quote. Medellin, liberation theology, and I would argue Christianity itself, eliminate the strict separation of the human and the divine planes. And that's Jesus, human and divine. 
And that's us, now with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Christ. As Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, quote, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. End quote. So there are not two processes of liberation, one human and another divine. There is one process in Christ. Olivero says, quote, Human progress is growth in Christ. End quote. So while we cannot limit salvation history to economic, social, and political growth, we can say that these very human forms of growth are growth in Christ because nothing human save sin is alien to Christ. And that's why the Latin American bishops speak to economics and politics at Medellin. They know that the one salvation in Christ, God and man, has these human dimensions. And these dimensions are of particular concern in Latin America where oppression reigns. Now let's zoom in on another personal story here of my own contact with Latin American liberation theology. And uh, in my first year of first studies, that's the stage of Jesuit formation when we uh, learn philosophy and some theology. Originally, you know, I was going to go to Mexico in order to do this stage of formation. But what happened is a, a, a little bit before I was meant to go to Mexico, I got a concussion. Now, I was, I was playing soccer in Peru and, uh, and I got the concussion. And so we determined that instead of going to Mex Mexico, I was going to go to Loyola University Chicago and do my studies there. Many Jesuits in first studies and theology and, and in regency when we're working full-time in a certain ministry, as part of our formation, we'll have summer assignments. And so I went to my superior, the great, great father, Kevin Flaherty, a wonderful man, and I was like, Kevin, you know what I would really like to do over the summer is to have an experience, an agricultural experience. You know, I'm kind of a city boy. I would like to learn more about agricultural work in the ministry of the Society of Jesus in Mexico with farm and migrant workers and, and have an experience of solidarity with them in their work. And my superior was like, David, that is the, that is the dumbest idea for you. You're just recovering from a concussion. And now, and it was a tough concussion. I mean, I, it, the concussion was so bad that I had to take off a semester of studies. Uh, so it, it really was a bad one. As soon as I was starting to get better, I was like, okay, let's, let's have a, a more uh, intense physical labor experience here. And my superior was like, absolutely not, David. Why don't you have a calmer experience, but also at the margins? And did you know that there is a theater run by the Society of Jesus in Honduras? A lot of people don't know about this theater, David, but I know you're interested in Spanish, you're interested in theology and philosophy, and you're interested in art. Why don't you go to the theater, have some time there, maybe consider writing an article about the theater. So I was like, Kevin, that sounds like a great idea. And so off uh, I went that summer to Honduras and I began to get to know Teatro La Fragua, again, our Jesuit theater in Honduras and run by a Jesuit priest who had gone to St. Louis uh, University High School and had been in Honduras for 40 years working at this theater. And in an interview I found 
that this the theater's way of proceeding had been referred to as the artistic wing of liberation theology. So this, of course, piqued my interest, and I began to dive into the work of the theater. And one of the things that this theater would do is we were speaking before of the ecclesial base communities. Ecclesial base communities being oftentimes groups of lay people, sometimes accompanied by a priest or or nun or brother, and they would gather together and read the Bible in light of their experience and interpret it and then kind of act together as a community in light of the gospel and their experience. What this theater would do, it had an amazing program that was called El Evangelio en Vivo, which is the gospel live. <laughs> and the theater with actresses and actors and directors from Honduras, as well as Father Jack, would do basically ecclesi ecclesial-based communities, uh, no pun intended with the base there. They would go to communities, especially you know, youth groups and uh, existing base communities, and they would do the work of an ecclesial-based community, but in theater. That is, the community would read a passage of scripture, oftentimes with a liberative dimension to the passage of scripture, and they would put on a play interpreting that passage according to their experience. And the idea behind this was, again, for people who, as Liberation Theology notes, the, the goal is to transform people from spectators of history into active agents of history, forging their own future. And the same thing is kind of true here on an artistic level, right? Because people who may be having a passive experience of social transformation as spectators are now are now acting. And they're literally acting out the liberative Bible passages. And so many stories I could share about uh, communities where this was the case and, and they're interpreting the gospel in light of their experience. For, for example... One of the most powerful stories that I read about when I was at La Fragua was, you know, at the beginning of the gospel, John the Baptist denounces the exploitation of soldiers who were taking advantage of their power in order to gain money for themselves. And at that very time in Honduras, the Contra War was happening with Nicaragua. And again, Honduras was used basically as a staging ground for U.S. Contra missions uh, against the Sandinista Nicaraguan government. Regularly, soldiers, Honduran soldiers, Nicaraguan Contra soldiers, U.S. soldiers would be just roaming around Honduras in the Honduran countryside. And on one occasion, an ecclesial-based community or youth group, I can't remember which, they were acting out that scene of John the Baptist denouncing the excesses of the exploitations of the soldiers. And just in that moment, a troop of soldiers rolled in to the church where this was taking place to investigate what kind of activity was happening in this church. And the people who were acting out this scene at that moment realized the prophetic message of that part of the Bible and the relevance that it had for their time. John the Baptist's powerful denunciation of militarism has a relevance today. And that just as John the Baptist did it, so too the church must do it now. I was so inspired by the liberative work of this theater that thus was born my first book project, which was La Fragua, the Jesuit Central American Theater on the History, Theory, 
practice and biographies of actors, actresses, and directors at this theater that came out two years ago. And I go through the elements of liberation theology that are expressed in the way that this troupe does theater. Again, I think through Teatro La Fragua was a rediscovery and a reigniting of the commitment to Latin American liberation theology that I had discovered a few years prior in Guatemala. The second phase of the history of liberation theology, Oliveros calls Genesis, 1969 to 1971. And its crucial moment is the publication of Gustavo Gutierrez's A Theology of Liberation in 1971. He sees the book as a crystallization of intuitions, sketches, articles, symposia, Medellin, and an ever-deepening reflection in the movement. And he identifies five key contributions of the text that would mark the future of liberation theology. First, a theology in dialogue with the social sciences. Second, definitions of important terms like the poor, poverty, liberation, utopia, and salvation. Third, a reorientation of the themes of Christianity around liberation praxis. Fourth, an affirmation that all authentic theology is spiritual theology. And fifth, liberation as a historical process. And let's explore uh, amongst these five things. There's, it's impossible for us to be able to dive into all five right now, though I would love to. But we'll just stick with one point within one point, which is the definition of liberation. Since, well, I mean, it's it's so central to the subject of this podcast. So what is liberation? Well, to begin, we read that Gutierrez juxtaposes developmentalism and liberation. Developmentalism is when the richer, more developed countries help poor, less developed countries become more developed. And there are several problems with this way of thinking. First, it falls into the earlier discussed trap of dependence. Instead of the oppressed becoming agents of their own destiny under developmentalism, they continue being forced to rely on paternalistic help from the United States, Canada, Europe, and their global financial institutions. Second, developmentalist theory does not question the underlying problem of the inequality in the first place, which is to say, as Gutierrez writes, that, quote, underdevelopment is nothing other than a byproduct of the development of other countries due to the type of relationship maintained between them, end quote. To put it simply, rich nations are developed precisely because of their exploitation of cheap labor and resources from poorer nations. So the idea that rich nations can help poor nations develop is absurd. What will the rich nations tell the poor nations to do? Exploit each other? It doesn't make any sense. So developmentalism is bust. And the alternative, Gutierrez says, is liberation. And here's where he says something rather radical. Only a quote, only a radical break from the present state of things, a profound transformation in the system of property, the exploited classes' access to power, a social revolution that breaks with that dependence will allow us to move towards a different society, a socialist society, end quote. This profound socialist transformation is liberation, and Gutierrez speaks of liberation on three compenetrating levels. First and foremost, liberation is, quote, 
the aspirations of oppressed social classes and peoples, end quote. This level of liberation is, by definition, conflictive. The lower classes and peoples aspire to liberation from the exploitation of upper classes and peoples. Second, liberation is a process whereby humanity becomes more and more consciously the agent of its own future, like at Teatro La Fragua, the passing from being a spectator to being an actor. It is the humanist forging of new women and men and a new society that is qualitatively different. Third, liberation is Christ's liberation of humanity from sin. Sin being a rupture of friendship with God and others, the root of all injustice and oppression. Freed from sin in Christ, people are able to live in communion with each other and with God. At the end of the day, Gutierrez argues, these three levels are really one process, and salvation is a free gift from God who relishes humanity with freedom and with the capacity to create a brighter future based on love. So that's liberation, according to Gutierrez. And we can see why Oliveros considers the 1971 book to be such a watershed moment in the history of liberation theology. And crazy enough, I only talked about two pages of a theology of liberation here. It is so dense and so good. Now for a second story related to my deepening in commitment to liberation theology. Also, when I was in Honduras with Teatro La Fragua on the weekends, occasionally I would journey with Radio Progreso, a Jesuit social justice ministry in Honduras, to some of the sites where tensions and struggles were occurring. And I remember that one of the first trips that I made was to the Rio Gilamito. And this is a rural community where a hydroelectric power company wanted to exploit a river for energy. And the community rebelled against this company's desire to put a hydroelectric power plant there. For one, they had made a community agreement prohibiting the exploitation of the natural resources of their area. So there was that. They knew that it would cause pollution. They knew that it had the potential to change the course of the river, which would affect the agricultural processes in the area. And they knew that if this company were to establish hydroelectric power there, they would run other power companies out of business, and then they would jack up the prices having a monopoly on energy in the area. So the community organized and basically blocked the road that was leading to the river so that the trucks could not get down to the river to continue building this plant. And so they kind of formed a human shield in the middle of the street, and they just stayed there. They set up tents in the middle of the street, and they lived there for months on end. And so maybe at this time, it was, I don't know, a month or two into this process, and I went uh, for a visit. And this was such a community of love. And these people so committed to the defense of this natural resource, committed so much so that there were basically hired soldiers who were congregating near them with guns, intimidating them, basically wanting them to move and get out of the way so that this capitalist exploitation would continue, but they would not move. And then a moving moment. I went back to Hilamito a few months later. And at this time, 
some priests were going to offer a mass in the middle of the road, in the middle of the road, in solidarity with this community. And so there they did it on the same table where where women had been preparing tortillas, where women had been preparing the soups and, and tamales and various things that the folks were eating there. That became the table on which the sacrifice of the mass was offered in the middle of the street and where priest after priest stood up during the homily to condemn the violent exploitation of this river. And so you see the deep meaning of the liturgy in this context, the mass in this context. The mass is something that is liberative when it is connected to the struggle of the people. And I will will never forget that experience because it is such a radically different way of being church from my own experience of, of the church being something that goes to, that you go to on a Sunday. But here, almost like what Pope Francis has been encouraging uh, recently, is that the church needs to go out to the people and be in communion with the people and with their struggle. The church needs to make a mess. And that's precisely what was happening in this mass and with this community protecting their natural resources. The third phase of the history of liberation theology is growth, 1972 to 1979. And the culminating event is the Latin American Bishops' Conference at Puebla in 1979. Earlier at Medellin, bishops called for, quote, radical and audacious changes, end quote, changes which coincided with general trends in Latin America towards justice and freedom. These changes were met with a reaction by the dominant system. For instance, in 1973, the U.S. backed the coup of General Augusto Pinochet against the socialist Salvador Allende. And in the wake of the coup, the U.S. began to test its neoliberal policies in Chile by way of of the University of Chicago, which trained economists who Pinochet brought into his government. And David Harvey describes some of the effects of this regime change in a brief history of neoliberalism on page eight. Quote, they reversed the nationalizations and privatized public assets, opened up natural resources, fisheries, timber, I would add like water, as I was talking about in Honduras, to private and unregulated exploitation, in many cases riding roughshod over the claims of indigenous inhabitants. They privatized social security and facilitated direct foreign investment and freer trade. The right of foreign companies to repatriate profits from their Chilean operations was guaranteed. Export-led growth was favored over import substitution. The only sector reserved for the state was the key resource of copper, rather like oil in Iraq, end quote. So began the wave of neoliberalization throughout Latin America that sought to eliminate just gains made by liberationist movements around the continent. These movements around the continent were on the go. Before Medellin, liberation theologians would have a number of fruitful encounters, interchanging with European theologians at the Escorial in 1972, discussing their methods in Mexico in 1975, dialoguing with non-Catholic Christians about liberation theology in Detroit in 1975, and sharing experiences of colonialism with African theologians in 1976. Oliveros observes that while these formative meetings were happening, 
a new generation of liberation theologians arose throughout the 1970s, whereas the first generation consisted of figures like Galileo, Segundo, Asman, Bonino, y Gutierrez. The second included names like Boff, Pidales, Munoz, Sobrino, Richard, Dussel, and Eacuria. There were also some important thematic advancements in liberation theology between 1972 and 1979. Olivero's names seven, but I'll discuss here too. A fruit of the Escorial dialogue was a clear delineation of the interlocutors of European theology and Latin American theology. Europeans are concerned with non-believers, but Latin Americans are concerned with non-persons, that is, people whose economic misery is dehumanizing. Europeans think about secularization, Latin Americans think about liberation. On this matter of secularization and liberation, Europe and Latin America, there is no better text than Juan Luis Segundo's book, Our Idea of God, in the series Theology for Artisans of a New Humanity. It's probably one of the books that has shaped my own theological thought the most, and I would love to do an episode on it at some point, but for now I can say this. For Segundo, there are two types of theology, test theology and project theology. And as an aside, I'm currently working on a fun essay about the application of these ideas to university pedagogy. Anyways, test theology, as you might guess, looks at salvation in terms of a test to get into heaven. If the individual believes and loves, then the individual goes to heaven. Project theology is much different. It sees salvation as a historical project on which God and humanity work together. The goal of the project is the fullness of the reign of God, a kingdom of justice and peace for all humanity. If, as Segundo argues convincingly, project theology is the truer one, then secularization becomes less problematic. Everyone, including the atheist, can work together to advance this reign of justice and peace. Faith, at least in terms of belief in specific dogmas, takes a backseat to love, and everyone can love. For Segundo, salvation is not so much a Christian project as a human project, in which Christians play the role of leaven. God does not hold back grace from non-Christians. God invites all people to play a role in the liberation of humanity from injustice, in the creative project of a new society based on the common sisterhood and brotherhood of everyone. Because the reign of God is primarily a reign of love and non-Christians can love, non-Christians can contribute to the reign of God, even if they don't believe the dogmas of the Catholic Church. And there's so much more to say about Segundo's theology, but uh, we'll have to save it for later. Uh, Another key central development of the 1970s came in the form of Enrique Dussel's epic work, The History of the Church in Latin America, which Oliveros writes, quote, reorients the reading of church history around liberation praxis, end quote. So to clarify uh, something to which I've alluded before, we could say that the history of the church in Latin America is one with the history of Latin America in general. Broadly speaking, the church, like society, passed through three phases in the modern era. One, a pre-1808 Spanish and Portuguese colonial oppression. Two, 1808 to 1930, the modern state that's independent from Spain and Portugal but retains its dependence on European and U.S. liberal ideals and economies. 
and three, post-1930, the awakening of the continent to its liberation. In many ways, the church has reinforced the ideology of the oppressor in each stage, with some noteworthy exceptions. But now, in liberation theology and in this current stage, there is the possibility that the church can be a more active, liberating force in history. As Fidel Castro has said, quote, I believe that we have arrived at an age in which religion can enter the political arena in service of humanity and its material necessities, end quote. Religion does not have to be an anti-revolutionary numbing agent, an opiate. It can be a catalyst for historical liberation. Now let's uh, move on to Puebla, the Latin American Bishops' Conference in Mexico in 1979 that confirmed the direction of Medellin and the subsequent liberation theology of the 70s. Puebla is wonderfully radical. It analyzes Latin American society in terms of economics, politics, and ideology. Some conservative interpreters accused Puebla of being atheist because its long commentary on because of its long commentary on these secular topics. But yeah, I, the question I would have for these critics would be: Christ liberates everything about humanity, so why would that not include central aspects of humanity like economics, politics, and ideology? Those who criticize Puebla for its dabbling into secular topics are mad because Christianity, when preached authentically, upsets their worldview and their power. Puebla envisions a church that does not coop itself up by retreating from history. It envisions a church that shapes society. One of my favorite lines from Puebla is, quote, It is urgently necessary. For the church to be the school that educates human beings who make history, end quote. Wow, <laughs> right? I mean, the church must be a school, it's saying, of conscientization. The place where, per one of Gutierrez's concepts of liberation, humans become change agents. Puebla calls for, wait for it also, the, quote, reconfiguration of church and society. End quote. And it makes special mention of the role of ecclesial-based communities as a means to this reconfiguration. These small groups of laypeople, sometimes with sisters, brothers, and priests, like I was talking about uh, with Honduras and La Fragua, they meet to study the Bible in light of their faithful commitment to liberation and take actions together as a dialectical response to their communal reflection. Puebla says they exemplify the joy and hope of the church. I love that. Finally, at Puebla, there is a reiteration of Medellin's transformative declarations on the church of the poor as a builder of a new society. Puebla is, to summarize, a stamp of approval on Medellin, showing that Medellin is not a one-off in the history of the church in Latin America. And now for a third story about my personal commitment to liberation theology from Honduras. I want to share with you a little bit about an experience I had journeying with Radio Progresso to a mining community. And we did, uh, me and two others, we got onto a truck and began our journey to this uh, distant mining community. The truck did break down along the way, maybe about two hours into the journey. So there we were stranded on the side of the road for a while. But eventually we got a new truck and we continued on to the mining 
running community. And uh, we stayed overnight. We got there the next morning and total shock for me. We're approaching the mountain and you can see this big, ugly hole in the mountain that is like an eyesore in this beautiful countryside. And we're, we're getting closer to it. It's getting bigger and bigger. We begin going up the hill. And there is a town that is on top of this mountain, and half of this mountain is being eaten away by this mine. We make it to the top of the mountain, and we begin to interview folks, courageous folks, who were willing to share their story of pain, the pain that this mine had caused their community. First, there was a man who came up to us, very sad, very scared, and he said, I have to show you something. I'm going to go back to my house, grab it, and then I'll show you. So a few minutes later, he comes back and he has a sheet of paper. And so he hands me the sheet of paper and I begin reading it. And I see that it is a report on his blood. Okay. And in this report, it is, it angered me so much. It said that he had lead and mercury and cyanide in his blood. And we asked him, well, what happened? And he said, I began working for the mine. I got sick. The mining company sent uh, me for a blood test, and this is the results of the blood test. And when they found out that I was sick in this way, they fired me. And oh, I was, I was, fe- I was so sad. I w- uh, ugh, ugh. And then we continue learning more about this mining community, and we find out that the sheer horror of this mine, the sheer horror of this mine. There's no other way to describe it. They wanted to exploit the land under the community's cemetery. They had done some study, and according to this study, the most gold, or whatever they were mining, was below the cemetery. So they had the nerve to say, we're just going to exhume all of the bodies and put them elsewhere so that we can... And and, and by the way, this mining company is an affiliate of a company, not a Honduran company, but a Canadian company. Horrible. So these people's natural resources that belong to them and their community are killing them, and all of the profits are going elsewhere. What's what's up with that? It's horrible. The community tried to fight against the uh, exploitation of the ground under the cemetery. They lost that battle. Basically, police and military agents came to kick them off their land so that the mining company could continue to exploit this land. Then, to top it off, this, this, this horrible experience that just is ironed into my memory as a clear instance of the injustice of anti-environmental capitalism is some people from the community take us to a different side of the mountain and there, there are these sprinklers that are running. And they, and I was like, what are these sprinklers? Uh, you know, are they watering? What, what is going on here? They're like, no, the sprinklers are spraying cyanide, like the thing that you take to kill yourself. They're spraying cyanide on the rock because it helps to separate the rock from the gold. And I was like, OK, that's not good. There's cyanide now seeping into the ground. And they're like, absolutely right. That cyanide is running into our water supply here in the river and it's killing all of our fish. Some people in this community lived off those fish, and now the fish are dead. And on top of that, we're noting a huge increase in the number of birth defects in our children. And we think that it's because of the polluted water. So with Radio Progresso, I learned about the struggle of this community 
And just in those three experiences, the experience of the theater, the experience of the water rights, the experience of the mining, I came to see that there is a struggle happening on this planet. And the struggle that is happening on this planet is obscure. It can't be seen from my life as a, a middle-class white person in the United States, all right, who, again, benefits through the dependence of these countries on the United States economy, benefits from this exploitation, but it is, I can't even see it. It's hidden. It's hidden hundreds of miles away. And when you go there and you see what is happening, there's no way that you cannot be transformed. And so those, those three experiences in many ways sealed the deal for me and uh, confirmed my way of being a Christian has to be a liberative way of being a Christian or else I'm not a Christian at all. The fourth phase of the history of liberation theology is what Oliveros calls consolidation from 1979 to 1987 under the subtitle Towards Maturation in the Midst of Conflict. Two major events mark the first phase of this consolidation, the Sandinista victory in Nicaragua in 1979 and the assassination of Oscar Romero in 1980. Oliveros writes that one of the positive things about these events is the commitment of the clergy to liberation. Priests Ernesto Cardenal and Fernando Cardenal take on important roles in the Sandinista government, and Romero is one priest among many in El Salvador who gave their lives to justice. It's refreshing to see clergy and other religious leaders standing up to oppression when so often it seems that the church in the 20th century is on the wrong side of the conflict. Not refreshing, however, was the growing power of neoliberalism in the 1970s and 1980s. Many Latin American countries, enticed by the false promises of developmentalism, or we could say better, coerced, by the false promises of developmentalism, contracted large amounts of debt in the 1970s, along with this debt's interest. These loans constitute a, quote, interminable bleeding, end quote, according to Oliveros, even to this day. For example, a Honduran financial journal claims that foreign debt, 262 billion lempiras, represents 91% of Honduras's yearly budget of 289 billion lempiras. Debt and interest are crippling the economies of the oppressed and only reinforce their dependence on their capitalist neighbors to the north. Also not refreshing is the negative feedback on liberation theology by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, or CDF, which issued two critical documents in 1984 and 1986. Though the CDF did acknowledge that liberation is one of the principal signs of the times, which is great, and John Paul II told Brazilian bishops that liberation theology is not only fitting, but also helpful and necessary, which is great, the CDF and John Paul II were not happy with four perceived elements of liberation theology. Its basis on Marxist analysis, its manipulation of biblical texts, reducing them to their political dimension, its departure from magisterial interpretations of the Bible, and its emphasis on a purely earthly Jesus. 
Oliveros responds to these allegations from the Vatican in the text. He says that even a cursory reading of Sabrino's Christology from Latin America, Gutierrez's We Drink from Our Own Wells, and Leonardo Boff's The Maternal Face of God shows that the affirmations of the CDF are simply false. Liberation theologians do not actually make these reductive claims in their writings. And we will see in a future episode that Clodovis Boff goes to great lengths in his writings to avoid the reductionisms that the CDF alleges. Oliveros concludes his epic first chapter of Mysterium Liberationis by looking both forward and back. Forward, he invites the church to keep working and asserts that liberation theologians have made enormous strides in a number of theological areas at the end of the 1980s. These efforts must continue. Oliveros writes, quote, The church's spring is young, but there are still some stringent frosts, end quote. Let me add my voice to Oliveros here. The work of liberation cannot let up. We must run the race and fight the good fight until the end. Looking back, Oliveros ends with the verse from Luke chapter 4 that summarizes Jesus' mission, which is the same mission that continues in liberating praxis today. Quote, I have come to bring good news to the poor, to set the captive free, to proclaim the time of the grace of God, end quote. Amen. Once more, we'll end the episode with a prayer, this time from Pope Francis in his encyclical Fratelli Tutti, Sisters and Brothers All. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O God, Trinity of love, from the profound communion of your divine life. Pour out upon us a torrent of fraternal love. Grant us the love reflected in the actions of Jesus, in his family of Nazareth, in the early Christian community. Grant that we Christians may live the gospel, discovering Christ in each human being, recognizing him crucified in the sufferings of the abandoned and forgotten of our world, and risen in each brother or sister who makes a new start. Come, Holy Spirit, show us your beauty reflected in all the peoples of the earth so that we may discover anew that all are important and all are necessary, different faces of the one humanity that God so loves. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much for joining the second episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. I look forward to next time with y'all when we will go through a kind of a heady text, but a very interesting one, Clodovis Boff's commentary on the epistemology of liberation theology. I can't wait to explore that with y'all. See ya.